0: Let's stand, grab your copy of scripture, and open up to John chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 28 to 30. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. So Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we thank you for your word pray that you would humble our souls before you, that we would receive uh, what you would have taught to us through, uh, through me, through uh, a fallen man. Father, I pray that, you would, that we would be like children longing for the pure, pure milk, and in this case we pray that we would long for the pure milk of your word. And so help us and feed us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So we return again to this passage where we read about Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. I mean, honestly, so much, so much ink was spilled recording the events of Jesus doing combat with the Pharisees. Uh, in, in the uh, Gospels that almost every passage in some sense could be prefaced by that. Jesus doing battle with the Pharisees. Jesus doing battle with those who had the hearts of the people but were doing what? Were misleading them. They were sheep without a shepherd. Right? They, they were um, distressed because they had been not been taught. And here Jesus is uh, doing combat. All the way to the end of the chapter, we're going to read about this encounter with the Pharisees. So it's, it's, gonna, it's going to get even more intense. Last time we focused on that first sentence of verse 28. Look at it, that first sentence of verse 28. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, speaking of his crucifixion, then you will know that I am he. Right? Jesus was informing the Pharisees that it would become evidence that he was the Messiah and it would become evident after his crucifixion and that they would never be done with him. As much as they wanted to be rid of him, as much as they wanted to be done with him, they thought they could kill him and get him out of the way. No, he would still have a relationship with him. In fact, Jesus Christ has a relationship with every soul that has ever been made in any part of this world. The Pharisees, the unbelieving Jews, thought that they would end Jesus' influence. They thought that they would end their relationship with him when he died. Not so, Scripture teaches. It's appointed to men once to die, then judgment. Right? On the heels of Jesus asserting his authority as their Messiah and their judge, then, he now goes on to speak about being under authority. He's asserting his authority as the Messiah and the judge, and now it shifts. And he begins speaking about his submission to authority. He says, I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Right? So he goes from this rebuke where he's asserting his authority, and now he turns to contemplate why he's rebuking these Pharisees, and it has to do with the fact that he submits to his Father's authority, and the Father has told him to do this. And there, are, there really are three elements in what Jesus says about his relationship here to his Father. And like a good Puritan, I lay them out here for you ahead of expositing them, which is not my typical style. You, just got, you guys have to figure out where I, where I usually am at. But here, I laid it out. First, he speaks of the Father, and I, tr- I tried to alliterate, but then I gave up. First, he speaks of the Father's authority over him. Okay, just simply speaks of the Father's authority over him. Second, he speaks of the Father's presence with him. And then third, he speaks of the Father's pleasure in him. Okay, just in these these three short verses, uh, that's what we receive. So first, he speaks of the Father's authority over him. Now stick with me here. Some, Some... Sermons have to be more heavily theological. And, the, and for that reason, I have to stand on the shoulders of giants, uh, you know, theologians who have at least a hundred times the brain cells that I have. And so um, stick with me through this. He speaks of the Father's authority over him. Now just think of that. Right? Your mind should start formulating questions. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And here Jesus is speaking of submitting to the Father. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all equal in power and glory. And here the Son is speaking of submitting to his Father. You remember where John's gospel started, right? It starts with an origin story, except it's not an origin story because there really is no origin there, right? It speaks of in the beginning, and which is a stand-in for all of eternity, uh, all of eternity, all of eternity past. So there's really no origin for Jesus. The scriptures teach that Jesus Christ, who took on the flesh and lived among us, as the confession summarizes. Very God of very God is who he is. Very God of very God. John's gospel begins with these consequential statements, right? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? And then a little ways on, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So these truths are only accepted by those who have the Spirit. Those are radical statements. Right? Now, that passage in John 1 establishes that God is the Father and God is the Son and elsewhere we learn that the Spirit is God. He is Therefore, he, God, he is three persons in one essence, right? Standard Trinitarian theology. This is about, right at this point, that's like the extent of our knowledge, right? (laughs) Three persons, one essence, one God, a trinity, right? And so, um, but we have to go beyond that. This is our doctrine of the trinity. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God these three are one and yet the father is not the son and the son is not the father and the and the spirit is not the father or the son and yet they are all one okay now we're getting a little tiny bit deeper into trinitarian theology and these and now here's where it gets a little tricky Because we're talking about the the submission of the the son to his father. That's what this passage is asserting. I always do what my father taught me. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Nowhere do we ever see a statement where Jesus says, The father does those things that I taught him. The father does those things that are pleasing to me. We don't receive that kind of statement in Scripture. And so these three, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, have an order even within their absolute equality and simplicity. Okay, they have order within simplicity. Uh, The Father is first, the Son is second, the Spirit is from the Father and the Son, and so is third. And yet they're equal and what one does the others do, right? And they're simple. Uh, they're not composed of parts. Now, even as I say that, you, you must remember that we are using finite minds to understand the infinite God, right? There comes a point where our processing capacity gets maxed out, and there's too much information trying to be brought into too small of a hard drive, Right? Regardless, we must be very careful to assert both the simplicity of God, and by simplicity of God, that is, a, that is a theological category that he is one and he is not made up of disparate parts. He is not a composite being. Right? And even as we assert that, we have to, to assert the diversity of God, meaning he is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit in one essence. Got it? It's all clear so far, right? So the question arises, because of this passage and others in the Gospel of John, the question arises, does this mean it is inappropriate to speak of the Son's submission to the Father? right? Equal in power, divine simplicity, not composed of parts, and yet Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal in power and glory, as our confession says. Is it inappropriate then to speak of the Son's submission to the Father? Well, this passage and many others in the Gospel of John and elsewhere uh, teach it. Especially this, turn to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 by the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, and it, you know, enter into this, this Trinitarian mindset, right? Enter into this, they're one and three. They're three persons, one essence. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ at His coming, then comes the end, right? After all this resurrection, then comes the end when He, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has established abolished, sorry, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, yea and amen. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, listen to this, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, to Jesus, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. I mean, what does this mean? Jesus, after all the resurrection is over and his kingdom is established, then lays it to the Father and submits, it appears, eternally to the Father in laying this kingdom before his Father. It appears that the Son will gladly be subject to the Father for all time into the future. And yet they're equal in power and glory They are a divine simplicity. They are three in one, one in three. They are persons in one essence. And yet there's order. In what sense can we talk about the father and the son who are one having that kind of relationship in their persons or as two subjects of the the one being of God? How can we talk about? about order within this singular essence. This is when we turn to the theologians, at least the trustworthy ones. Because there are many untrustworthy theologians on this topic today. Feminist theologians will not say what I'm about to say. And here's a good theologian. His name is Herman, okay? And so he's gotta be good, right? What's his last name? Yeah, you guys know it. Herman Bovink. Right now, stick with me, please. This is thick, okay? And there's just, uh, yeah. Listen to this. Not only are the Father, the Son, and the Spirit distinct subjects in the one divine essence, they also appear in a certain order. Their so-called personal properties, as mentioned before, are paternity, fatherhood, paternity, or, he, he says, unbegottenness. Filiation, which is sonship, right, or begottenness. And then, fili- or not filiation, but sanctification, which he uses for the spirit, or procession, the persons differ individually in that one is father, the other son, and the third spirit. We got it. We got that. These characteristics are eternal. The father is only, um, father is only an incidental attribute of being human. Some men never become fathers. We're not fathers before becoming one. Our humanity as men is not exhausted by our being fathers or son, but in God, being God and personhood coincide. Being father and personhood coincide. In each of the three persons, we might say, the divine being is completely coextensive with being father, son, and spirit. They are entirely those things comprehensively. Whereas we can be human and and not be a father, God can't be God and not be father, son, spirit. Okay? Paternity, filiation, and procession are not accidental properties, but the eternal modes of existence of and the eternal imminent relations within that being. While our human nature unfolds over time and in space, the unfolding of God's being immediately absolutely and completely coincides with and includes the unfolding of his being into persons, as well as that of the imminent relations expressed in the names Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father is only an eternally Father. The Son is only an eternally Son. The Spirit is only an eternally Spirit. The Father is God as Father, The Son is God as Son, and the Holy Spirit is God as Holy Spirit. And as much as all three are God, they all partake of one single divine nature. Hence, there is but one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May he be praised forever. Okay, that's Bavink. Now, there's so much there, but what I want you to take away is this the paternity of the father or the fatherhood of the father and the filiation of the son, the sonness, the sonship of the son precedes Jesus' incarnation. Precedes Jesus' incarnation. Many theologians, the feminist type, want to essentially deny distinctions between the persons while they emphasize God's simplicity. And they say... Uh, to speak of uh, too much distinctions is to jeopardize the oneness of God and the divine simplicity. But it is important to know, uh, you know and to, to know this and to not follow the feminists and not be afraid of speaking of order within the Trinity that is not merely a function of Christ taking on the flesh. They'll say there's order, right? It's only when Jesus was in the flesh. And I'm like, no. No, God has always existed as Father, Son, Spirit. There's always been order, and it's not order arbitrary. It's order that derives from fatherhood, paternity, sonship, filiation, and procession of the Spirit. There is order prior to Jesus' incarnation. We see it even in this passage, don't we? We see it even in this passage. How do we see it in this passage? Well, Jesus says, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. Well, now, how does that prove that there is order in the Trinity before Christ's incarnation? How does that passage do it? Well, first, the Father sent the Son. Okay, the Father sent the Son. You may think, well, these, yeah, duh. I mean, but these are hugely important truths. It was the Father who sent the Son. That decision preceded the incarnation, didn't it? It would have been inappropriate or incongruous with the father's paternity and the son's filiation for the son to send the father. It would have been inappropriate. It would not have have jived with the the paternity and filiation. It would have turned things on their head. It would have disordered the order. Second, now when Jesus says that he speaks what the father says, Taught him. We need to get a little cosmic. Okay? Let's go a little cosmic. Um, he speaks what the Father taught him. When did that teaching take place? We can certainly attribute this to Christ's incarnation because as regards his human nature, he did learn. Didn't he? He learned. And yet, this is... This, What's being said here to me is more the, the language of, of Jesus being given a mission by the Father. It's sort of, it's, it's, uh, it, it reads to me that way. And so tying this together with the Son being sent by the Father, we could understand Jesus to be speaking of what he was taught in the sense that he received of the Father the command to go and do certain things. Right? It's it's the working out of, of this mission. He received of the Father the command to go and to do certain things. He didn't lack any knowledge, right? As the eternal Son of God, Jesus didn't lack any knowledge. There was nothing he didn't know as the eternal Son of God. But he always related to the Father as a son, he is always related to the Father and always will relate to the Father as a son. And so the paternity and filiation of the Son always existed and meant that the Son received his mission, his teaching, his orders as a function of that order, eternity past. He received that from the Father. Now, Bavink, Herman, takes this even a step further. He says that the best analogy that we can come up with for the eternal generation of the Son from the Father, the eternal begottenness of the Son from the Father, is the figures of thought and speech. Thought and speech. In this sense, the Son is is the very teaching of the Father. He, he is it in an ontological sense. He is the teaching of the Father. And that from all eternity. This is why scripture speaks of Jesus as what? The Logos. The Word of God. And what does Logos mean? It means speech. It just means speech. The Word of God. And why... Um, and and it, it is why he is described to us as the word of god again bovink listen carefully god cuz we're going cosmic your thoughts will be having thoughts shortly god expresses his entire being god the father expresses his entire being in the logos for god to beget "...is to speak, and his speaking is eternal. Here it differs from limited and sense-related human speech, which has no life in itself. When God speaks, he totally expresses himself in the one person of the Logos. He is the, the speech of God, okay, whom he also, Jesus, granted to have life in himself." The Son is begotten out of the very being of the Father. From eternity, the Son of God is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, right? Nicene Creed, we just recited this recently. Contra the Arians, the Son is not a creature, but God over all forever praised. Not brought forth by the will of the Father out of nothing and in time, he is generated out of the being of the Father in eternity. Generation, therefore, should not be seen as an actual work, a performance of the Father. Rather, we should ascribe to the Father a generative nature. Right? He doesn't want to put a beginning to Christ's generation because that would make him a creature. What he's saying is that, that this generation of god this begottenness of jesus is an eternal begottenness because of the nature of the father okay you all i know are with me stick with me rather we should ascribe to the father a generative a generating nature therefore contrary to the arians who said there was a time when the son did not exist the generation of the son is eternal To reject the eternal generation of the Son fails to do justice not only to the deity of the Son, but also to that of the Father. It deprives him of the eternity of his fatherhood. Isn't that interesting? It deprives him of the eternity of his fatherhood and leaves unexplained how God can truly and properly be called Father. The father is not and never was ungenerative. He begets everlastingly. The father did not by a single act beget the son and then release him from his genesis, but generates him perpetually. For God to beget is to speak and his speaking is eternal. Because the Logos, the word of God, right? From him being eternally begotten through all ages past. Okay, this isn't Jesus is my friend sort of Sunday school stuff you're getting today, right? This is the straight dope. This is the Trinitarian theology that we should all come to terms with and understand. We have to know this or Jesus just becomes a dude. But Jesus is eternal God. and eternal Son. So, taking what Bavink has said, in other words, when Jesus says, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me, he's allowing us to enter into the eternal and infinite. These are not just you know, dad gave me some things to say while I was incarnated, and I came, and I said them, and here they are. Well, of course, it includes that, but it's way more than that, right? This is, this is way back. This is, this is the, the veil being t- um, taken away so that we can see something. He's essentially saying that he and the father are one, which he says elsewhere in the gospel, but spelling it out a bit. The nature of the Father is to be generative, to be fruitful, right? So much so that his speech, God the Father's speech, is his Son. That's how fecund, that's how fruitful God the Father is. His speech is is the Son and the begottenness of the Son, right? And Jesus is more than your co-pilot, he is the very speech of God which is communicated in a person of the Trinity. And now your mind gets boggled, right? Jesus is the speech of the Father. He is the teaching of the Father, like, ontologically. His being is the speech of the Father. He, he, is, he is derived Nah, that's not a great word. But there, I mean, there are shoals when you start talking about the Trinity that you can crash on. And so what I think, I think this is what Jesus is saying here. It's not that he's speaking of learning the scriptures in his human nature, which he did, which is mind-boggling in a different way, right? In his human nature, he learned from the things he suffered, he learned the scriptures, he grew in, in stature and favor with, with man and with, and with God. He did that, but it just can't mean that, or we get into territory where Jesus kind of learned, you know, if we, if we just hold that, that Jesus learned in his human nature, we get into this territory where, where you would be tempted to say that, that Jesus kind of just found out he was God as he went along. Like, it was, it was slowly revealed to him, and he didn't really know that he was, he was God. And that's wrong. That's more than wrong. That's, that's um, terrible. Um, he is speaking of what he is in relation to the Father. He is begotten. He is the Logos, the Word of God. He is the speech of the Father. And now in the flesh, he was communicating of himself all those All of what his father desired to deliver in him. So you see, he's he's telling them that they will not only see after his crucifixion that he was the Messiah, but that they will also see that he was the very word of God, the eternal God himself, begotten of the father before all time. He's really saying, you've completely missed everything. Augustine agrees with my interpretation of this passage, and so I feel good about my interpretation. Listen to th- listen to Augustine going a little bit psychedelic here. Um, Incorporeal, I can't say that. Incorporeally, the Father spake to the Son, because incorporeally the Father begat the Son, and. He taught him not as if he had begotten him ignorant and in need of teaching, but this word taught is the same as beget him knowing. Right? So he's saying, trust me, he's saying exactly what I just said. Right? He's not like saying he's ignorant and he taught him some things and he took him up. He's talking about begottenness in saying he taught him. He's talking about his nature in when he's talking about him. Well, so much for that. But think on those things. There there these scripture is easy to understand. You by the study of scripture scripture can come to that conclusion and come to that uh, understanding of this passage. Um, unless you're hallmarkifying everything that Jesus says, right? My second point is that this passage teaches us the Father's presence with the Son. He says, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Um, This is not what the Pharisees thought Right, they thought he had a demon, they thought that he was forsaken of God. They thought that he they thought he was going to commit suicide, right? Which would be the actions of somebody who, who who didn't have didn't know Jesus or didn't know the Father. They thought he was a blasphemer. They thought he was actually against God. And Jesus, in the face of these ridiculous insults and accusations, says, No, the Father who sent me, he's with me. He's with me. He's not left me alone. He is with me even now. Right? Through all eternity, this father was with him. When he took on flesh and was born of Mary, Right when he was, when he was uh, floating around in that amniotic fluid, God was with him. When he was insulted and scorned by the people, he came to save, right? God, his father was with him. When he agonized in the garden of Gethsemane and asked that the father take away this cup from him, his father was with him. When he was lifted up on the cross, his father was with him, wasn't he? Even as he stated those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father was with him. Is that true? Was the father with him there? It says that the father had forsaken him. Was the father with him? Well, the father and the son are one. And it's not like the cross ungoded God. But perhaps... That was the one point in all of eternity that the father left the son alone. Is this the one time in which the comfort of the father or the favor of the father was not with the son? Well, how could there actually be a breach between the father and the son who are one? Another simple, easy-to-resolve question, right? Well, Calvin says... Again, standing, standing on others' shoulders. Calvin says, Though the perception of the flesh would have led him to dread destu- destruction. This is Calvin on that statement, uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Calvin says, Though the perception of the flesh would have led him to dread destu- destruction, still in his heart faith remained firm by which he beheld the presence of God, of whose absence he complains. Still, he beholds the presence of God of whose absence he complains. The perception of God's estrangement from him, which Christ had, as suggested by natural feeling, did not hinder him from continuing to be assured by faith that God was reconciled to him. And so, as to his his human fears, God had abandoned him, but as to his faith... He believed, right? In other words, again, stick with me. Stick with me. If you need to go get a cup of coffee, go get a cup of coffee and come back. Oh wait. No, I'm just kidding. In other words, even when Jesus expressed the deep anguish and pain that he was feeling, he was still sustained by his faith okay though he he became sin and in a sense became everything that god hated he did not stop being the eternal son of god second person of the trinity the presence of god was not removed at that point but became wrathful even still it pleased god the father to bruise him Right? It pleased God the Father to bruise Jesus. In other words, even as the wrath was being poured out upon Jesus at that moment, in the greatest depth, he was doing that which pleased his Father. Dying to save sinners. Dying. Even as the strokes of justice fell upon Jesus, his Father was pleased for his work. He was forsaken by the father because he was sinned, but he was not abandoned by the father because he was his son. And then there's this. The very fact that it says, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? serves to show us that the son had not rejected the father and that the father had not abandoned the son. He still says, my, my father. So there has never been a point when the son and the father have not been, have, there's never been a point where they've been opposed to one another, that they've been at odds with one another, that their wills have conflicted with one another as if they had two wills and negotiated everything, right? They, the Father did not leave his son alone, even on the cross, and will never, never, ever, ever leave him alone. There has never been and never will be a breach in their love, and that is the love that you get to enter into when you are regenerated by the Spirit. The love of God, the eternal love of God is poured out in the heart So, the eternal love of God, the pleasure of the Father and the Son, the joy of eternal love, this is yours by faith in Jesus Christ. And it is yours for an eternity. You enter into that Trinitarian delight by faith. You shall always be in the presence of God, even as the Son has always been in the presence of his loving Father and accepted. Finally, the the Father takes, notice the Father takes pleasure in his Son. Jesus said, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now, fathers and sons, stop what you're doing. And just listen to me. My sermon's almost over. The father takes pleasure in the son. Jesus said, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. The first thing we should understand from those words is that the son never sinned against the father during his incarnation he was the spotless lamb of god he had i mean had he sinned he would he would not have been spotless spotless or unblemished right he would not have been a pleasing sacrifice to the lord he would not have been doing the things that are pleasing to his father if he had sinned because the lord do you know this the lord delights in righteousness Did you know that? The Lord doesn't just delight in mercy. He does delight in that. But the Lord delights in righteousness. Right? It seems today like the whole Christian church speaks a lot about mercy, but very little about righteousness. Right? And so, and so righteousness is a category, is sort of cast out, sanctification cast out, where we would pursue righteousness, pursue holiness, and I, all we talk about is grace and mercy. But did you know that the Lord delights in righteousness? It says this in Jeremiah, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, that's a fancy word for mercy, justice and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. Have you thought about the fact that God delights in mercy, justice, and righteousness? Doing what is pleasing to the Lord is righteousness, right? Is that a good definition of righteousness? Doing what's pleasing to the Lord? God delights when we obey his word. That is indeed why the father delighted in his son. He always did what was in the word. He always always fulfilled the word. He always lived up to the law. He always did what was pleasing to his father. Unlike us, he did not decide to head in the direction opposite of God's will or opposite of God's commands. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, therefore... We also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We have it as our ambition to be pleasing to him. Jesus said in our passage we're looking at, I speak these things as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me, has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now, fathers and sons. Fathers and sons. And I guess daughters and fathers too. But I'm on the father and the son thing today. Fathers, take delight in your sons. Take delight in your sons. The Father in heaven delights in his sons. So uh, take delight. Why should you take delight in them? Because they're sinless? Because they're not obnoxious? No, no. They're just, they're your sons. That's why. They're your sons. 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 Zeke, Thomas, sons, do you want to be pleasing to your father? Do you want to be pleasing to your father? Well, it's really simple. And you won't like me saying it. Obey them. Obey them. Do what is pleasing to them, and you will find that they indeed take delight in you. You will. And that's the relationship that Jesus has with his father. He always did the things that were pleasing to him. And the father, therefore, delighted in the son who was always doing those things that were pleasing to him. Right? So do what is pleasing to your father. And he will take delight in you. And why is this hard? It's hard because your fathers are hypocrites. Your fathers are sinners. And it's hard for you to take directives from your father because of that. I feel that in my bones every day. It is hard for you to take directives from your father because of his hypocrisy. But find an example in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's supposed to be your example anyway, not me, ultimately. He obeyed his father, and his father was pleased in him. Try that tactic. Seriously, try that tactic. I'm not really speaking of the rules of the house like not peeing on the toilet seat. But that is a rule of the house, fellas. Although, you know, we we should start there, I guess. I'm, I'm talking about when your fathers require... Something of you that you think is impossible, and that you think there's no way I would ever do what he has just asked me to do. Get a job. How am I supposed to do that? I'm 14. Figure it out, son. Get a job. Respect your mother. Respect your mother. Help your father cut down trees from the middle of a valley. That once for my dad. She made us do once, and it was absurd. Cut trees at the top of a hill they roll down. Cut trees from a valley, and you have to pick them up, up the valley. Anyway, it's... Um, I didn't do well. I did not do what was pleasing to my father on that day. Cutting off a friendship, fighting sexual impurity, serving in the church. See what joy the Lord gives to you when you obey your father, right? The son of God did not regard regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but but obeyed his father even to the point of death and death on a cross. Uh, This was the delight of the father and the delight of the son. See if your heart sons, does not rejoice when you submit to your earthly father and obey him. See what it's like to have a good conscience with your own father for once. Wouldn't that be sweet? Everybody in the world will hate me for saying this, but submission really is a powerful relationship tool. And children are called to submit to their fathers and mothers. Right? And we need, look, no farther than the son of God's obedience to his father. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Try emptying yourself, sons. And fathers, one last exhortation to you. Fathers, make it easy for your sons to obey you. Make it easy. Do not exasperate them as I have done with my sons. Do not exasperate them and repent of your hypocrisy, right? When you, which is, you know, our hypocrisies are when we expect something of them that we refuse to do ourselves, whether that's our purity, whether that's uh, a bunch of shingles that have to get put on the roof, right? So, sons, remember that in obeying your fathers, you are obeying God, Um, That is ultimately what matters. Honor your father and your mother. This is well-pleasing to God, right? May God restore then the hearts of our fathers to their sons and the hearts of the sons to their fathers. And may we have relationships like those that are described in this passage of John like that between the eternal father and the eternal son. Amen.